Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 104 of History of the Marine Corps, the First Battle of Guam. The attack on Guam came only a few hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor. The island's defending force was significantly undergunned against the 5,500 troops from Japan's South Seas Detachment. We spend a little time talking about the amusing way Guam came into U.S. possession, attempts to fortify Guam, and move on to the actual attack by Japan. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Japan's coordinated attack against multiple installations in the Pacific was the tipping point that launched the U.S. into World War II. So far, we covered Pearl Harbor, Midway, and Wake, and we're still in the opening days of the U.S. entering the war. The island of Guam was also targeted in this initial raid. Now, the story of how the island became a U.S. possession is a little comical. It dates to the Spanish-American War in 1898. If you're new to the podcast, we covered this conflict during episode 71, fittingly titled the Spanish-American War. The conflict didn't have a lot of action, but the time period provided a few events that are relevant today. One is yellow journalism. Journalists relied on sensationalism and biased reports and presented them to the American public as truth. If you spent any time on the internet, I'm sure you've seen this type of journalism play out. We call it fake news today, but the concept is pretty much the same. In his book, American Journalism, historian Frank Luther Mott identifies yellow journalism based on a few characteristics. Headlines that are designed to scare readers, often of minor news, extravagant use of pictures or imaginary drawings, use of faked interviews, misleading headlines, pseudoscience and information from so-called experts, and dramatic sympathy with the underdog against the system. This book was published 60 years ago, but the characteristics are spot on to what we're seeing today. Yellow journalism was used because it works. Another outcome of the Spanish-American War is that it outlined the future relationship between the United States and Cuba. The Platt Amendment in 1901 allowed the U.S. to intervene in Cuban affairs. For the next 20 years, the United States sent troops to Cuba to protect U.S. interests. 
That military intervention ultimately led to the rise of Fidel Castro. And lastly, some historians point to this time when the U.S. began defining itself as the protector of democracy. Many U.S. citizens, businesses, and religious leaders believe that we had a responsibility to spread our way of life and support those outside the U.S. border. Guam was seized on June 21, 1898 by Marines under First Lieutenant John Twiggs Myers, also known as Handsome Jack. If you ask me, I think he looks like a skinnier version of Mr. Belvedere. Fifty-six Spanish Marines were garrisoned on the island when the USS Charleston pulled up and started bombing Guam. Communication was poor, and the Spaniards never received the news that there was a war between the two countries. They thought the shots from the Charleston were a gun salute. A Spanish messenger rushed to the capital six miles away and requested the governor send artillery so they could return the gesture. A boat filled with Spanish authorities sailed to the Charleston to welcome the Americans. U.S. troops were confused with the greeting. They informed the Spaniards that the two nations were at war, and Spanish officials were shocked at the news. The island was eventually surrendered by the Spanish governor. There were no casualties during this conflict. The Spanish-American War ended with the signing of the Treaty of Paris on December 10, 1898. Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines became American possessions. The rest of the Marianas were sold to Germany the following year. And when Germany was defeated in World War I, the terms of the Treaty of Versailles transferred possession of this territory to Japan. Tensions with Japan were high even before the United States entered World War II. With Guam in her possession, the U.S. was sitting on a small, isolated island surrounded by territory now owned by Japan. After the First World War, the U.S. developed plans to fortify the island in an attempt to guard the Philippines and East Asia routes. But these plans would never come to fruition. The immense cost to improve defenses and the lack of military support from the U.S. population after World War I caused this project to die on the vine. In 1922, the United States and Japan signed the Five Power Treaty, which was meant to limit the naval arms race in the Pacific. Article 19 recognized the U.S., British, and Japanese bases in the Pacific, but prohibited each country from expanding its fortifications. This treaty essentially cut off further work on Guam. When Japan denied the League of Nations entry to inspect their territory, the other signers of the treaty took this as a warning that something was up. In March 1933, Japan left the League of Nations, and the United States decided to revisit its plans to fortify Guam. But this was easier said than done. The U.S. was in the middle of the Great Depression, and the little money the Navy had was dedicated to building up defenses at Pearl Harbor. There weren't many resources sent to Guam, which left the island defenseless for the next few years. When the United States brought in Guam as one of its territories, the civilian population came with it. There were 9,000 Guamanians on the island, and the U.S. placed a naval officer as the governor in charge of the local residents. Marines were sent to help defend the island and have been on Guam since it first came into U.S. possession. 
Now, there's a fascinating book titled History of the Pioneer Marine Battalion at Guam. It was written by Private John H. Clifford. He was one of the first Marines stationed there. He kept a diary for the five years he served in the Marine Corps and documented his time on the island. It's a fun read, and I'll put the PDF under this episode's page on the website if you want to check it out. By 1941, the population in Guam had more than doubled. Most residents lived within a 10-mile radius of the island's capital. As the relationship between the U.S. and Japan began to deteriorate, the decision was made to evacuate all dependents and civilians. It took months, but on October 17th, the evacuation was completed. By December 6th, all classified information had been destroyed on Guam. And two days later, Navy Captain George McMillan was notified that the U.S. was at war with Japan. The attack on Guam came only a few hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Japanese forces in Saipan, 150 miles to the north, led the assault. Now, Guam had some defenses, but what was available could not compete with the incoming raid. The most powerful weapon came from the USS Penguin, a minesweeper with anti-aircraft guns on board. The only other weapons Marines had in their possession were four 30 caliber machine guns. The number of troops defending the island was small as well. There were 153 Marines, and about 80 native Chamorros made up Guam's defenses. Japan had been flying reconnaissance missions over Guam since March, and they had a good idea of the level of resistance they would face during their attack. When Japanese planes arrived, the USS Penguin moved outside of the harbor to gain more maneuvering space. She fired her anti-aircraft guns at the Japanese bombers, forcing them to climb higher and limiting their accuracy. This caught the attention of the other Japanese fighters, and soon she became the target of bombing and strafing runs. One group of bombs landed on both sides of the ship, and it caused substantial damage. One sailor was killed, and over 60 were wounded. The Penguin managed to shoot down one plane, but the coordinated attack left her in bad shape. She was sunk to prevent her capture, and the remaining crew boarded life rafts and defended Guam from shore. With the minesweeper out of the way, enemy attacks changed their focus to the marine barracks at Erote Peninsula. Japan targeted different naval installations and strafed roads throughout the island. There was a small Japanese population in Guam, and everyone got along great before the war. In fact, a Japanese resident owned the largest and most popular tavern on the island. Captain Lucius Johnson described the bar in the 1942 U.S. Naval Institute proceedings as a place where, quote, Sailors and Marines like best to hang out and argue the fine points of their professions, unquote. Agana, the island's capital, was evacuated after the attack, and the 35 Japanese residents who had immigrated to Guam were rounded up and imprisoned. The following day, Japanese bombers swooped in again and continued their attack on Guam. The 80 local guards 
and 28 Marines prepared to protect the government building in Agana. On a rope peninsula, Lieutenant Colonel William McNulty and his six officers, one warrant officer, and 118 enlisted did what they could with what they had. They took defensive positions in the butts of the rifle range and waited for the Japanese to come. At 0400 the following day, flares were spotted near Dunkus Beach and rifle fire started to pop in town. The 28 Marines and local guards garrisoned in the capital were the first to fire at the incoming 400 Japanese troops from the 5th Defense Force. Around the same time, 5,500 other troops landed on the south and east coast of the island. The U.S. was vastly outnumbered, and the small force of defenders didn't have the resources needed to put up a fight. With little option, Captain McMillan decided not to endanger the lives of the civilians, and he surrendered Guam a little after 6 o'clock. Four Marines were killed and 12 were wounded. The remaining were taken as prisoners. About a month later, the POWs were transferred to the prisoner camps in Japan. Most Japanese landing forces left the island in the following months, leaving the Japanese naval units who were present during the surrender as the island's defense. The relationship between the residents of Guam and Japan quickly started to deteriorate. The island's name was changed to Omiyajima and its capital to Akashi. This had a significant impact on the pride of the locals. Japan ordered schools to teach Japanese instead of English, and a punishment system was established that penalized entire families or communities if one individual messed up. Life worsened as the Japanese began to build up Guam's defenses. Guamanians were used as forced labor and men, women, and children used their hands as their primary tools. As the war dragged on, schools were closed, church was forbidden, and Japanese soldiers assumed command of all government functions. Japan sent more and more Japanese troops to the island, which meant less food and resources for the locals. When the Guamanians were no longer needed, Everyone living near military areas were forced to evacuate their homes and placed in concentration camps. There wasn't medical help in these camps, sanitation didn't exist, and food supplies were minimal. In addition to the torture and rape, more than 1,100 are estimated to have died during Japan's occupation, some of whom were executed by beheadings. The children who did survive were usually deformed from disease and malnutrition. The same day Japan raided Guam, they attacked Thailand and Malaya. The Thai government initially denied Japan's demand to allow troops on their soil. As a result, Japan invaded from French Indonesia. The Thai prime minister arranged a ceasefire and formed an alliance with Japan. Malaya is also lost when three Japanese infantry battalions land and outnumber British and Australian troops. In China, Japan advanced further into the country and eventually reached the Marine Detachment stationed there. Colonel William W. Ashurst, the senior Marine officer in China, surrendered Marine detachments at Tianjin, Peiping, and Camp Holcomb, as well as the Embassy Guard, 
to the Japanese on December 8th. Japan also launched attacks on two other U.S.-controlled islands in the Pacific, Johnston and Palmyra. The United States claimed these two islands under the Guano Islands Act, which is also a pretty interesting subject. The Guano Islands Act is a federal law that allowed U.S. citizens to take possession of islands containing guano in the name of the United States. For those who do not know what guano is, it's bat crap. Islands could be located anywhere, so long as they are not occupied and not within the jurisdiction of another government. Now this sounds like a weird law, but everyone was all about guano at the time. It's even called guanomania. You know, it just hit me now, but I wonder if that's where the term batshit crazy comes from. Guano was used as fertilizer, and many believed it would revolutionize farming. Saltpeter was also extracted through a process known as leaching, and it was used for gunpowder. More than 100 islands have been claimed by the United States under the Guano Islands Act. But most were withdrawn after the supply was used up. As of today, 10 islands remain in U.S. possession under that act. What's fascinating is that it's still relevant, and it was used as recently as 1997. A U.S. salvager claimed Navassa Island in the Caribbean Sea under the act. It was ultimately rejected by the Department of the Interior because it is already under American jurisdiction. So if any of you claim an island under the Guano Act, name a road after me. In November 1939, the 2nd Battalion 15th Marines were redesignated as the 1st Defense Battalion. On February 15th, an advance echelon left San Diego on the USS Enterprise and headed for Johnston and Palmyra. In April, the rest of the detachment followed. Three months later, more Marines from the battalion were sent to Johnston Island. When the United States started to build up defenses on other islands in the Pacific, Johnston and Palmyra were included. The islands were tiny, and only a small detachment of Marines were garrisoned there. In early December, the number of Marines on Johnston were seven officers and 155 enlisted. The island also had two 5-inch guns, four 3-inch guns, eight 50 caliber machine guns, and eight 30 caliber machine guns. Palmyra had similar defenses. There were seven officers and 151 enlisted. The island had four 5-inch guns, four 3-inch guns, 850 caliber and 830 caliber machine guns. Japan thought Johnston Island was too small and too close to Hawaii for an amphibious assault, but that didn't stop a Japanese submarine from taking a few pop shots at the island. On December 12th, a submarine surfaced 8,000 yards off Sand Island and fired a few star shells. Marines immediately responded and fired back with their 5 inch guns. The submarine stopped firing and was quiet for the next few days. On the 15th, two Japanese ships opened fire on the island. The attack damaged multiple buildings and a 1,200-gallon oil storage facility. Again, the Marines immediately returned fire with their 5-inch guns, causing the ships to leave before sustaining any damage. On the 18th, 21st, and 22nd, 
submarines returned to Johnston Island and occasionally fired at the Marines. By December 30th, reinforcements arrived, and the island had an additional 5-inch and 3-inch battery, 16 more machine guns, and more Marines to help. But Johnston wouldn't see further action. The Japanese didn't attack for the rest of the war. Palmyra saw even less action. The only attack on the island came on Christmas Eve, 1941. A Japanese submarine surfaced 3,000 yards from the island and began firing at the dredge Sacramento. The Marines responded with their 5-inch guns and the submarine left. The Sacramento sustained minor damage. On December 9th, in addition to these U.S. installations, Japan's South Seas Detachment, the same group used to attack Wake and Guam, seized the Gilbert Islands. Two islands that were included in the seizure were Macon and Tarawa. Marines will visit these two islands later in the war, and will cover those battles in future episodes. One of the longest battles during Japan's coordinated attack in the Pacific was the Battle of the Philippines. Japan's invasion had four objectives. They wanted to prevent the use of the Philippines as an advanced base of operations by U.S. forces, use it as a staging and supply base to improve operations against the Dutch East Indies and Guam, secure the lines of communication, and limit the Allied intervention. Japan began its invasion on December 8th and seized an island 150 miles north of Luzon. Through the course of the battle, close to 150,000 U.S. troops and Filipino soldiers were casualties or prisoners of war. This battle is considered the worst defeat in U.S. history. Thanks for listening. Our next episode will dig into the Philippines campaign. This week's audiobook is How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence by Michael Pollan. This book is a little detour from the traditional military history recommendations. The use of psychedelics for certain mental health has been something I've been interested in for some time. This is a topic that's easy to criticize, but more and more research is coming out that shows promising results, especially for the veteran community. The Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, also known as MAPS, completed their MDMA-assisted therapy trial for PTSD. Two months after the final experimental session, 88% of the participants had a greater than 10-point reduction of PTSD symptoms and 67% no longer met the criteria for diagnosis of PTSD. Those numbers are astounding. Even the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs has launched clinical trials to study the effectiveness of psychedelic drugs as a treatment for military veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder, addiction, and other serious mental health issues. This book dives into the science of psychedelic use for mental health. This research isn't necessarily new. Throughout the 1950s, psychedelic research showed promising results in treatment of alcoholism, depression, anxiety, and obsession. But after the Staggers-Dodd bill outlawed the possession of psychedelics in 1968, the research hit a wall. 
The author spent some time talking about his experiences using various psychedelic drugs while visiting therapists in an underground community. This wasn't necessarily a turnoff, but I could have done without some of his stories. Now, the use of psychedelics for mental health seems to be a very divisive topic. I'm not sure why. I put the blame on Nancy Reagan and her BS Just Say No campaign. But if you're interested in learning about some research and firsthand accounts, check out this book. The use of psychedelics to help with mental health has come a long way. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.